2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says this, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for all these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Well, I heard a story about a pastor who went to this community breakfast, and at this community breakfast, um, it was a group of guys, and they just started talking about things. And one of the things that came up is retirement. They were kind of middle-aged in their 50s, 60s, and uh, they just started talking about retirement, and this one individual stated how he was just so excited to retire. And he had actually had a conversation that very morning with his wife, and he had told her like how he's so excited to retire. And his wife asked him, so what are you going to do when you retire? He said, I'm just going to watch TV all day, every day. Everyone was silent. Nobody said anything at this, at this breakfast, and then the pastor felt like he should say something. He couldn't keep silent. And so he told the man, he said, I think you're going to be dead in a year. He says, what do, you, what do you mean? He said, well, if your lack of purpose doesn't kill you first, then your wife is going to kill you. <laughs> Think about purpose. What is your purpose? It's a question that all of us have asked. Many people have thought about, but unfortunately, many people never find the answer. Uh, there was a survey that was done among uh, 18 and 24-year-olds a few years ago, and in that survey, they found that uh, these, this age group, young adults, felt like uh, being, finding your purpose was kind of a pivotal part of what it meant to be an adult. That finding your purpose was what it meant to be an adult, but most of them hadn't found their purpose. Uh, only 43% of them said they had a clear picture of what they wanted in life. Uh, only 36% said that their career path aligned with their life purpose. And only 30% said they knew why they were here. Uh, Christina B. Wellen, a professor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, concludes this, This study isn't good news. Coasting is existing, not thriving. The majority of young adults who say they don't have a clear picture of what they want in life also say they are existing but not thriving, while those with purpose more often say that they're thriving. I think that we have trouble with this question, what is your purpose, because it's kind of a too open-ended. It's too open-ended of a question when we think about what is your purpose. Uh, now, my grandfather uh, grew up during uh, World War II, and when he was, uh, just before his 18th birthday, he decided he was going to go and serve our country in World War II. Uh, so he joined the Navy and, and then valiantly served our country. And I, I think back on that and, like, what would it be like to join the armed forces during World War II? And, of course, he did that for one reason. He did that to serve his country and help our country win the war. Now, when someone does something like that, when they join the military or join any great organization, you join that organization and then your needs and your desires kind of become subservient to the desires and, and goals of the organization. 
So he didn't join the military in World War II and say, huh, maybe I should start a business here. He didn't join the military and say, maybe I should write a book. He said, I'm here to serve our country and help us win the war. And whatever that looks like, whether I'm flying a plane or loading weapons or uh, serving food, no matter what that looks like, I'm going to help our country win the war. I mean, there's latitude there, but it's not an open-ended question. It's not like he could just do anything that he wanted. Happens with any great organization. You find your mission in the context of the mission of the company or the organization. How can I use my skills, what I have, my experiences, to help support the, the, the organization of, of accomplishing what uh, either the military or whatever the organization may be uh, wants to accomplish? There's some latitude. It can look different, but it's not open-ended. In the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is once again kind of defending his apostleship. There were some, specifically one individual who was kind of a rabble-rouser causing trouble in the church at Corinth, and they were questioning uh, Paul's authority and his apostleship. And so Paul is defending that, and he uses this metaphor to kind of describe uh, what life in Christ is like and describe the purpose of God. And the image that he uses is the image of the triumphal procession. Now, to think about a triumphal procession, probably the closest thing we have today is a Super Bowl parade, where the victors of the Super Bowl march through uh, the city gates of of their city, and they carry with them kind of the spoils of war, so to speak, that trophy, that Lombardi trophy, as they walk through the city, and there's music and all kinds of fanfare related to that. In the ancient world, something like that happened. When a general would win a battle, he would march through the gates of the city, and it would be this big victory parade. And as we look at this idea of the triumphal procession, Paul is going to teach us a lot of things about purpose and what it means to follow after Christ and what it looks like to serve Him in ministry. And there's three specific things that he tells us about purpose in this passage. And the first thing he tells us is that purpose is not derailed by unexpected obstacles. Purpose isn't derailed by unexpected obstacles. He states how he, he went to Troas, and he says that there was a great door open for the gospel. But Titus, who he was supposed to meet there, wasn't there. And so he says, I was kind of anxious in my soul. I wasn't sure what was happening with, with Titus. And so even though there was a door opened uh, to preach the gospel, I had to leave there to go and find what was happening to Titus. So on the one hand, this would probably been a really difficult thing for Paul because we know that as he was carrying out his ministry, it wasn't always this way. I mean, he would go into cities and preach the gospel, and he would be driven out of town sometimes. He would be beaten. He would be thrown into prison. And so here he is in Troas. He has this great opportunity to share the gospel, and yet there's a problem. Titus isn't there. And so he has to leave that great opportunity to go and find Titus. And yet in spite of this change of plans, Paul says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the knowledge of him everywhere. I believe what Paul is saying here is despite his change in plans, despite the fact it might seem like he missed an opportunity, God's mission and God's purpose is still going forward. Just because we face unexpected obstacles, just because things don't happen the way that we hope that they would, doesn't mean that God has failed. It also doesn't necessarily mean that we've done anything wrong. 
And the thing that we forget is that God calls us to follow him. He wants a relationship with us. It's not just about giving us a road map for life. You know, I think about directions. And, you know, I drove to Florida back in February. And uh, as I was driving home, I was looking at the GPS and following those directions. But there was a time when I wasn't sure exactly where I should go. And then I would call my dad and ask him, like, what do you think? Which direction should I go? What would be the best way to handle this? And I believe that's kind of the relationship that God wants to have with us. He doesn't want to just give us the map. Say, here's, here you go. He wants us to live in that close relationship, calling out to him each day, saying, God, which way would you have me go? And so sometimes we have plans, sometimes they're even good plans, and God says, no, I'm going to take you in a different direction. And as he does that, he takes us exactly to the place that he wants us to be. And so Paul says, just because the plans have changed, just because I faced these obstacles, there was a door open to the gospel, Titus wasn't there, doesn't mean that God's purpose isn't going forward. When I was in seminary, I had to do something called mentored ministry. It was kind of like this applied ministry type internship thing. Um, and so what we'd have to do is we had to find a local church to serve in. It was like 10 hours a week for 12 weeks or something like that. And we had to have meetings and stuff. Um, and it was kind of open-ended what we could do. So I was going to school near Boston. And I had a couple opportunities that I was interested in back home for the summertime. And one of the opportunities was at a church plant. And the other was at... Uh, my church, uh, the chapel, and uh, so I came home, and I was just kind of trying to figure out how I was going to spend the summer and, and what internship I was going to do. Neither opportunity ended up working out, so I was pretty upset. I'm kind of bitter about this, and part of me was just like, well, I'm just not going to do anything, but I had to do, you know, something. I didn't want to waste the summer because I needed the credits and had to, had to get this done, so I ended up doing something uh, at the chapel I didn't actually want to do, a different kind of ministry. And one of the parts of, one of the things that I did as a part of that internship was I started some nursing home ministries. And uh, so I would go to, I went to a couple of nursing homes and started, did services and um, prayed with them and whatnot. And so I went to the first nursing home and I was a little bit discouraged. Again, I'm like, I had other things that I wanted to do. I didn't want to be doing this at all. And so I go there, and they told me how uh, they were, you know, they had plans from like 8 a.m. in the morning to 8 p.m. at night. They had activities all throughout the day for the people, and uh, they had several different church services and different groups that came in, and so they took it, put me with uh, the people who are kind of in late-stage dementia, and, um, and I'm just kind of trying to figure this out, and, and, you know, again, they had several church services, and I'm just thinking, why am I doing this? And I feel like I'm just spinning the wheels. Then I go to the second nursing home and talk to them about, you know, starting nursing home there, or ministry there. And I found out that situation was a little bit different. They didn't have any church services, uh, Protestant church services. This was going to be the only service that these people would have if they, if they weren't Catholic. So I'm like, okay, at least I'm doing something, contributing something here. And then I met an individual there named Dan who just kind of floored me with what he said. Dan was a Christian. He had been a Christian for years. He was relatively young to be in a nursing home. He was only maybe in his 60s, early 70s, but he had late-stage pancreatic cancer. And he described to me how he watched the chapel on television each week and how he had been praying that someone would come and start a nursing home ministry or start a, a church service there at the nursing home. 
And I was God's answer to his prayer. Now, he dragged me along, kicking and screaming. It was completely not what I wanted to do. I had other plans, things that I thought were going to be a lot of fun and do great things for the kingdom. God's like, no, I got a different plan. I'm going to help you answer Dan's prayer. A few years later, or a few months later, he passed away. Uh, but that ministry continued on for several years. Even after I went back to seminary, uh, there was a, a service there uh, where people heard the gospel week in and week out. It wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't my plan, but God knew what needed to happen. And if I wouldn't have uh, had those obstacles, there's no way I would have been able to experience those blessings. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. We all tend to prescribe the answers to our prayers. We think that God can come through in only one way. But Scripture teaches us that God sometimes answers our prayers by allowing things to come, become much worse before they become better. He may sometimes do the opposite of what we anticipate. Yet it is fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we're dealing with God. You've got to always be prepared for the unexpected. And purpose isn't derailed by unexpected obstacles. We need to just expect that when obstacles come, God has a different purpose, a different reason for us. So purpose isn't derailed by obstacles. The second thing that Paul tells us about purpose is Jesus is the purpose. Jesus is the purpose. You and I are not the purpose. In the triumphal procession, there was one person who was kind of the person of honor, and that was the victor, the general who led the, the, the battles in victory. He was the one who got all the glory, honor, and praise. And discovering our purpose starts with realizing that we're not the purpose. Paul states, he says, we're men of sincerity. We're commissioned by God, and in the sight of God we proclaim Christ. That is, the deity God is the one who calls them into action. He's the one who's sovereign over their lives and ministry, and their mission is to proclaim Christ. And in the triumphal procession, often what would happen would be uh, that there would be incense burners. And these incense burners would actually go before the victor. And they would kind of be a that would be kind of a proclamation of his victory. And Paul says that's essentially what he's doing. He's going forward and proclaiming the victory of Christ. He says in verse 14, he puts it this way, that we're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. His ministry has declared the good news, the victory of King Jesus. And yet how often, how easy is it to make life, to make ministry about other things other than Christ? I mean, think about just even the, the simple things like our holidays. We celebrate religious Christian holidays. Our major holidays are religious Christian holidays that we celebrate. And yet what do we make Christmas about? We make Christmas about presents. What do we make Thanksgiving about? We make it about food. What do we make Easter about? We make it about candy. We take the things of God and we kind of substitute other things. It's almost like going to a birthday party and enjoying the food and the cake and the company, but forgetting whose birthday it is. I think that's what we have a tendency to do so many times. And so the question is, if we think about our lives as kind of a procession or a parade, and in one sense it is, you know, we think we're on a procession from uh, birth to the grave, who's the victor? Who's on the throne? Who's leading that procession in your life? Is it Christ or is it someone or something else? For many, the one 
is, it is the self. That we're the victor in our own life. It's not Jesus. It's not giving him honor and glory. He's not on the throne. It's us. The parade exists for us, for our own benefit and enjoyment, so that other people would see our glory, our accomplishments. Some, for some, it's other things. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a career that's on the throne. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a habit that we just don't give up. Sin puts self at the head of the parade. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Yet because it's natural, it appears to be good. What shall we do, Acts 2.37, is the deep cry, heart cry of every man who suddenly realizes that he's the usurper and sits on a stolen throne. We all have a tendency to put some, someone or something else on the throne of our lives, to be the one that is honored apart from Christ. And yet when Christ is in the place where he needs to be, when Christ is on the throne, when he's the one who's leading the procession, when he's the one who we see is worthy of all honor and glory and praise, that's when we experience incredible freedom and incredible joy. There's an author by the name of Sadia Ansari. She wrote an article called uh, The Awesome Health Benefits of All Walking. She cites a psychologist named Jennifer Steller, from the University of uh, Toronto, and she has an ingenious plan to conduct spring cleaning for your mind. She puts it this way, we share a universal problem right now. We're all busy and stressed and maybe even more self-involved because of the pandemic. Social isolation may be contributing to a tendency to ruminate more or even be narcissistic, which is related to ego. But experiencing awe can quiet that ego. The article concludes, researchers define awe as the mostly positive emotion you feel when you're in the presence of something so vast you can't immediately understand it. Awe is often found in nature, the experiencing of watching the sunrise over the ocean on an empty beach or taking a long walk in a dense forest. But it also can be experienced by looking at a cityscape, listening to music or absorbing a piece of art that transports you to a sublime place. It can make you feel small, in a good way, reminding you that there's something bigger out there. There's nothing like experiencing awe. There's nothing like forgetting ourselves, putting Christ in the place where he's meant to be, and experiencing that joy and freedom. Because none of us are worthy to be on that throne. None of us can bear that weight, that responsibility of being on the throne, of directing our lives. But Jesus can. He's worthy of all honor and glory and worship. And when we put him in the place where he belongs, it changes everything. Jesus is the purpose, Paul says. He's the purpose of the procession. It's all about him. The final thing that Paul says about purpose is kind of surprising. He says, purpose creates division. Purpose creates division. Uh, this is surprising because you think about Paul's ministry and uh, again, one of the charges that people had brought against Paul was if he was truly of God, would he face so much opposition? Would people really reject him like they often rejected him? And Paul answers, and part how he answers is he talks about kind of the nature of smells. You think about smells, and 
I've never thought about this question, but I heard it this week. How many smells are there? And there's a lot of different smells. There's the smell of apple pie. There's the smell of shaving cream. There's a smell of a kitchen, of pine trees, of burnt toast. There's so many different smells. Um, experts actually suggest that there's probably between 10,000 and 30,000 smells. But what's even more surprising is that each person smells things differently. Uh, I'm sure you've probably experienced this where you go to a place that has candles or Bath and Body Works, wherever the case may be, and maybe you went with a, a spouse or a friend, and you're just kind of going around and smelling the different, the different candles or different soaps, and there's some that you're like, I really love this. And, you know, and then maybe your spouse is like, oh, that is disgusting. You know, and it's because we smell things differently. We each smell things differently. Um, Researchers suggest there's 400 genes for coating the receptors in our noses. <coughs> and there are more than 900,000 variations of those genes. And so when we smell things, it activates different things in our nose, different things in our brain. And so literally, we smell different things. Paul talks about this as well. But not only does, do we smell different things, but Different smells can have different meanings. So, say you smell apple pie. Now, for some of us, maybe it evokes memories of being at grandma's house and some nostalgia and, you know, kind of those happy memories. But for others of us, maybe, have you ever had an experience where uh, you ate something and then you got really sick afterwards and just were started throwing up? And then for a while, you don't want that food at all. It just kind of makes you sick just even thinking or smelling it. You know, maybe that happened with apple pie for you. And so when you smell apple pie, it's like, oh, I don't want any of that. Different smells mean different things for different people. So thinking about this image, Paul talks about the triumphal procession. And in the triumphal procession, uh, there were two different types of prisoners that were often present. The one type of prisoner were freed prisoners, people who were in enemy territory and so the victor comes and he liberates those, those, those slaves, those uh, prisoners. And so they're walking in the procession in freedom. They're, they don't have any shackles on their arms anymore. They're just walking in freedom. And they're grateful to the victor for freeing them. But then there's another type of prisoner, prisoners who are captured. And so they're walking through the, the gates of the city in the procession. And they got, you know, their hands tied and they're just walking in shame, knowing that this victor has defeated them. And at the end of the procession, they're going to die. They're going to be put to death. So Paul talks about this image. And then you think about the, the, the smells and the aroma and these, these uh, incense burners who would go before them. And he says these, this, this incense, these aromas, mean different things to different people. So, you know, the freed prisoner... The one who the, the victor liberated, he or she smells that aroma, and to that person, it's the sweetest smell imaginable. It's the smell, uh, the, the smell of freedom, smell of victory. But what about for the person who was just captured? He's got his arms tied, who's headed to their death. To them, that smell is repugnant. It smells like death. It smells like defeat. 
And so Paul says, when people encounter the gospel, the aroma of God, he said, that's essentially the, the picture he paints of the gospel, the good news, the proclamation of, of the reality that Christ has died and rose again. When people experience that, there are some people who have experienced that and been saved, and, and when they hear that or s- smell that, so to speak, they're going to be filled with joy because it's the sweet smell of freedom and victory. But for others... When they smell that, it's going to be the smell of death, and they're just going to turn away from that. While it could be a smell of victory, they turn away. Some it's going to even seem foolish or harmful. So Paul says, we can't be surprised when we experience division or conflict. And just because some people opposed Paul doesn't mean that his ministry has failed, because Different people smell different things. Some people hear the gospel and they're turned away from it. Now, of course, when we are in our personal relationships, we want to do everything that we can to try to maintain peace, to do what we can to make sure there's no division. But there's one thing that will cause division, and that is the gospel. That's why Jesus says something, uh, probably one of the most startling things he ever said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, that's kind of shocking to us. And of course, it's not that Jesus wants to create division, but Jesus came to the earth. He preached the good news that people could be saved by a relationship with God. And then he went to the cross and died and rose again. And there were some people who were like, yes, I believe in you. I want to experience a relationship with a father. And that there was others, sometimes even within the same family, who were, no, no, he's a blasphemer. I mean, anyone who proclaims the good news needs to be put to death. And so by nature, this gospel, this good news, this aroma uh, evokes different things in different people. Purpose, by nature, divides. Think of another example. Um, Starbucks, their mission statement is to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. That's their mission statement. So let's say I start working at Starbucks, and I decide that I'm going to come to my manager and talk about some ideas I have. And I go to my manager and I say, I got some ideas. I, I think that Starbucks should start a furniture store. And I think after that, maybe we should start a pizza shop. Well, manager probably explained to me, well, that's not what we do. We're about coffee. I mean, that's it. We're not about selling furniture. And, you know, maybe that's the end of the conversation. But if I keep going in that, and every free moment when I'm supposed to be making beverages, I'm just drawing schematics about what kind of furniture we should sell at Starbucks, I'm going to get fired. Because it's not in line with the purpose. Purpose limits. Purpose often divides. So we can't be surprised by conflict that occurs when we preach the gospel. 
Paul again tells us three things about purpose. Purpose is not derailed by unexpected obstacles. Jesus is the purpose, and purpose creates division. And as believers in Christ, we need to make sure that we're focused on that purpose. Paul was focused on that purpose, and it created some division, created some hostility, but he was right where God wanted him to be. And we need to make sure that we're laser-focused on that mission that God has for us, that purpose. There was a house that was created, it started, in, uh, started being created in 1884. It was created by a wealthy uh, widower named uh, Samuel, or Sarah Winchester. And she was the heir of the Winchester uh, gun family. And she had an incredible fortune, but she also had an incredible fear. She was very superstitious. She was afraid that the kind of the ghosts of people who had been shot by the guns that her family had created would come and haunt her. And so someone told her, or I don't know how she got this idea, but she got this idea is if there was always movement happening in the house, they would keep the spirits away. So she hired builders, and she had an incredible amount of money, and so they just kept working and working and working in this house. I mean, even after everything was done. It became a massive house. It had 160 rooms, three elevators, 40 staircases, 47 fireplaces, but even with all that grandeur, it got to a point where the workers were just getting bored. Like they had nothing left to do. And so they just started creating like weird stuff, like doors that opened to nowhere, uh, staircases that just went to the ceiling. Um, they had windows that were on the floor that decorate the floor. They just created all of these weird things. They were always doing something, but they had no purpose, no meaning. As believers, I think we need to be careful we don't do the same thing. Be careful that we're not busy and lack purpose. That we're not just creating things that are one day going to fade away, that have no meaning, no purpose, but that we're doing the things that matter. Paul reminds us of our mission here. Our mission is to follow the victor, King Jesus. As we're headed on this procession from birth to death, we follow after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and death for us. And as we're doing that, as we're following after him, we spread the aroma of the knowledge of him. We proclaim the good news to those around us that Jesus has won the victory. And every man, woman, boy, and girl who wants to can come and experience that victory, that you don't have to be a captive headed for death, that you can be a freed prisoner headed for life for, with God forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the victor. We thank you that you are the one who's worthy of all honor and glory and praise. We thank you that you can handle the responsibility of being in control of this universe, but also of being in control of our lives. Lord, help us to step down from the throne that's only rightfully yours. Help us to take down anything that we've put in your place and to find our joy and find our awe in worshiping you. As we're carrying out our mission in life, whatever that looks like in our individual situations, help us not for, to forget that you are the, the purpose. You're the point. Help us not to forget that sometimes you lead us to unexpected places. Help us not to forget that sometimes the mission involves obstacles, conflict. And that doesn't mean that your gospel, that your purpose isn't going forward. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for always being there for us. We thank you for leading us no matter we, where we may walk.
in Christ's name.